Welcome to episode 10 of season three on the Open Source Data Podcast. This is your executive producer, Audra Montenegro, and I'm here with our host, Sam Ramji. Hey, Audra. Today's guest is an open source titan. It is an honor to host him on the show. So I know you're excited too, Sam. Oh, yeah. I first met Larry Augustin back at the Open Source Business Conference in 2008 when he was serving on the boards of Hyperic and Pentaho. He had already overseen JBoss and ZenSource successfully through their acquisitions by Red Hat and Citrix. And it was right before he became the CEO of Sugar CRM. Before that, he was the founder of VA Linux, where as CEO, he led the company through what many of us think of as the first open source IPO. Something cool everyone should know about Larry is that he was part of the group that coined the term open source, along with Tim O'Reilly and others. He served on the boards of the Linux Foundation, Open Source Development Lab, and Linux International. More recently, he was the vice president for applications at Amazon Web Services, where he was responsible for application services, including Connect, Pinpoint, SES, Workspaces, Chime, Alexa for Business, and others. Larry's now an angel investor and an advisor to early-stage technology companies. Wow, impressive to say the least. I hope our audience is just as excited as we are. Welcome, Larry. So, Larry, when you and I were in Maui together in November, we had what was, to me, a pretty inspiring conversation with 20 people about open-source data. We were at the Lobby Enterprise Conference in it was amazing how many people packed into the, the the long boardroom and right. We ended up talking about a whole range of stuff. And there were a few people who really particular perspectives that broadened my thinking. One was you and one was Guido Appenzeller, right? Cause he offered that prompt of, okay, what would be the GPL for data? So really how far can we take this idea of open source data? That's much on my mind. And I'm curious about that. And I'm, I'm also just curious about what else are you doing? You left AWS, you're investing, you're advising. I've been spending my time with startups looking for new investments. I think it's a very exciting time right now, in particular in tech around open source. It's interesting for me because I was lucky enough to be there in the early days of open source and watch things. And I've watched this open source wax and wane a bit and then come back really strong. It's interesting because I think there's this period we went through where open source was so common that it stopped being special in some ways. And at first, everyone was trying to understand how do we do open source? How do things matter? What, what is our strategy around this? And they were trying to get a handle on it. And there was a lot of attention. And then as it became less special and more, yeah, we're doing something open source. We do these pieces. It fits into these spots. You think of the hype cycle and the trough. I think through a little bit through this trough of disillusionment. And then it seemed to magically just come back roaring. And we've seen that now in, in some of the businesses that have been built in the last five to 10 years around it. I also think cloud computing is a big part of that. We wouldn't have cloud computing without open source. I'm really excited right now because of all the different things we're seeing. You were one of the people who helped open source eat the data center. A lot of people forget that once upon a time, you couldn't build a data center for less than $100 billion because you needed to have all of your vertically scaled Sun hardware running all of your Solaris on top of it or pick your Unix of choice, right? You could have a giant HP machine, you could have a Superdome or something, and it's running HPUX, or some people affectionately call it HPUX. You were part of the barbarians at the gate that broke that down for Linux and turned that into, we do eat data centers and we can be in there. And you turned that into a public company. 
That's another sort of fascinating path for it. When we started out in the VA Linux days, we were building the first high-density when you rack mount servers that were going to data centers, running off common Intel hardware and Linux and other open source and putting all those pieces together. And, and as you said, really going after those proprietary Unix systems. But for me, the fascinating shift has been the expansion out of the data center and the moves out into consumer devices. The fact that all of us now have these incredibly smart phones that we have, of, that we carry around that would not exist were it not for open source and the amount of software on those devices that's open source or for any consumer, go to your TV, go into the settings or about menu somewhere and somewhere there's the GPL license because software built and running in that TV somewhere is using open source and it's using that kind of licensed software. And you can find it if you go look for it at the consumer level. To me, that's been the big shift. And that particular example goes a little bit to the comment I was making about becoming common in some ways. And that is a consumer could sit there, watch their TV, pull up all those apps and everything now streaming and your TV essentially being a platform for all of those apps today, pull all of that up and a consumer could see all that. And you could ask them about open source and they would say, what? I don't get it. And yeah, I might've heard about that stuff, but it doesn't matter anymore. Without realizing if you dig into it and you look, guess what? It's all driven by that. And to bring this back to the, the open data question a little bit, uh, when I think about open source data, I think about some of the same core themes that really inspired me or interested me in an open source. And, and I think about applying those in a data world. There were two key things that drove me there. One was the ability to take the software, the code, in directions that the original developer didn't choose to. We've probably all been there. We've had some piece of proprietary software, and we said, you know, gosh, if we would just do this one other little thing, I would go from liking it to loving it. Or it would solve all of my problems instead of just 90%. And the company, vendor, person building that proprietary piece of software, it doesn't make sense for them to go do that. You're stuck. You don't have a choice. So the, the first thing is the ability to, to extend, enhance, and reuse the software to be is really critical. And, and I'll come back to this as I carry this on to the data side a bit. But for me, that was a, a key thing. The ability to take something and say, it doesn't quite do what I want, but it's really close. If I could just do this last little piece, I could get it there. Let me have a way to do that last little piece. And then the second thing that was a real driver for me in open source was the ability to fix a bug or repair a problem. And, and again, we've, we've probably all been there. there. There was a bit of this iconic moment for me. It was in the early days of one of my companies, and I, I was using QuickBooks to uh, do the accounting. And there was this field. If I put in 12 characters, it crashed. But if I put in 11, everything worked. And it was very clear. And you're laughing, Sam, but anybody who's written enough code, or at least is old enough to remember when you wrote C code, knows that, that you could just see it in your head. Somewhere, somebody had a 11-character field. And when you put the 12th character in, it went off the end, and boom, everything blew up. 
Yeah, they had a magic number and they had only initialized so much memory. And then you should have hit something else and handled the exception. But in C programming, that often didn't happen. You should have at least checked. Oh, yeah. Right. There was an error checking that was missing there. There was a fixed buffer size. By the way, it was happened to be 11 characters because this was a uh, file name and it was DOS at the time was eight plus three. Okay. 11 characters should be enough for anybody. I could see the person writing this code thinking, oh, yeah, these things will never be longer than 11 characters because that's what's... And then the world evolved. You could have more than 11 characters that showed up here as you were referencing other things and it crashed. But I remember being unable to get someone in support to really care. Well, there was a fix. Only use 11 characters. Sitting there and seeing an error in your head. And the inability to do anything about it just really always frustrated me. And some of this is empowerment to the person and the individual, being able to take things and do things that you want, extending things, fixing things. Those were the kind of the things that always drove me. So if I take those two key ideas, when I think about open source data, to me, they drive a couple of the key concepts that I think about in open source data. The first is that ability to enhance, extend, and reuse. And that implies, by the way, that can sound simple because it's just data, just access, but there's a lot that goes behind that. You have to have the licensing correct. There's licensing, there's access mechanisms. Does that mean you actually, do you get the data in a structured format? And do you need to change the schema? Do you need to change the schema? People, when they think about data all the time, don't always think about the metadata that goes with the data. And I've seen this many a time, a company will say, they'll give you data and they'll give you the data without the metadata. And is the data without the metadata any use at all? If you've lost all of the references that were embedded in the schema. And also all the other information that you care about, like who wrote the data? At what time did you write the data? There's this old school Oracle database sense that the data reflects the only state that matters. So every update is destructive. And it loses causality. It loses any kind of time series relationship with anything else. You're dead on. There's an immense amount of information in that history, in, in the causality, in the timing, in terms of how those things happen that tell you a lot that if, if you have it available to you, you can learn from. You have to have all of those pieces. So while it's a simple concept of the ability to enhance, extend, reuse, there's a lot of very subtle points that come out of that, that drive what open source data means. And then the second piece of that is the ability to fix the data. On the surface, it sounds simple, but in fact, I have almost never seen a data set from anybody that was perfectly clean. I've done this in companies all the time. You go in, all of the data sets are dirty. You get used to, and, and most people who work with large volumes of data know that there's a factor, that there's noise in the data. And so what, what is your signal to noise ratio in the data becomes an important element to figure out. And there's a whole set of companies actually proving your point that are focused on data cleanliness, data pipelines, data hygiene, data observability. They're calling the whole field. You've got Laura Moses and her company, Monte Carlo Data. You've got folks like Shinji Kim and Selectstar. Right? You've got a whole bunch of really interesting stuff happening that just proves your point that the data is never quite what you want it to be. The data is never quite there. And so you need the ability to fix parts of the data that may be broken for you, okay? And you need that. You could argue semantics that maybe that's just an extension of the data, that's fine. But for me, those two key points of so this extend, reuse, and then this fix, repair, were, the, were 
kind of the two things that drove me originally around open source at its core. As I come into open source data, I think about those concepts there. And, and those now imply a lot of things in terms of licensing, how you access, types of access, the fact that metadata has to come with it, schema structure. So you get a lot of detail that begins to develop what it means to have open source data. I told you the little anecdote about starting with QuickBooks and having a bug and want to fix, or the personal view of using a piece of software and you want another function. But there's a bigger picture, I think, that it's important to talk about as to why this is important. And that is because when you have these things, you have the ability to innovate. But I, I think there's a theme here around open source data that applies and is important for society as a whole. And that's the ability to create innovation to enable innovation at paces you can't have in the proprietary world. And those core fundamental things that you get with open source really drive that. We would not have cloud computing were it not for open source. And, and people don't realize when AWS was licensing CPUs by the minute or licensing database by the minute, they could do that because they were licensing an open source database and they didn't have to pay on the back end for that in a different licensing model. And that ultimately encouraged proprietary vendors who had a traditional one-pay licensing model to come around to the idea that we could create a subscription or licensing model for this proprietary. And it really had to be open source all the way through. Any piece in there would break the stack. Remember when the first SaaS conferences were gearing up on how to do SaaS software, I want to say late 2004, early 2005. And it was so clear. Everybody was talking about an end-to-end open source stack because they were all tiny companies that wanted to be giants. And if you had any intellectual friction about whether your business model would work or not, you would go in a direction where there was less friction. So everybody was on LAMP stack. It was so taken for granted that it was turned into an acronym. People were just liberally talking about this, or it was Lamp J, but it was this alignment between your technology stack, your billing model, what you wanted to promise to your customers all the way through. It really pulled the entire system into shape as SaaS infrastructure, and then AWS generalized it into cloud infrastructure for build your own SaaS software however you want. Absolutely had to be purely open source all the way through, or the business model would fall apart. Exactly. And you look at the innovation that's created in the industry. And everything that's enabled, you start with open source, then you enable now cloud computing, you enable that low cost and that low cost of infrastructure and that low cost of getting started. Then you now take that into the startup world where as a startup, you can fire up your new service for literally zero dollars and you don't pay until somebody does the first transaction or the first login or, or that first page is viewed because then you're actually flowing through the servers and you start paying and you no longer have to buy all of that upfront expense. It's funny, you mentioned at the beginning being the, da- the early days of the data center, our whole business back at VA Linux was built on the idea that you had to put in 10 racks of servers to handle your traffic and people were spending tens of millions of dollars upfront to build that infrastructure. And you take that entire cost out of the equation, the innovation that you enable is there. And to me, that is the bigger benefit across society for thinking about things like open source data, which is 
You and I sitting here, I'm thrilled to have this conversation. You're an incredibly smart guy. We're never going to come up with all the different ways that people are going to build off of this stuff. The whole point is to enable everyone to do this. And people with access to the data are going to learn things and extend things in ways that we will have never imagined. And we are going to be so shocked and excited and thrilled when we see that happen. But it's only going to happen if we can figure out ways to lower that friction. That, to me, is ultimately why I think open source data is important in this. How do we lower the friction? How do people learn there and enable that innovation? You pointed at cloud, which also points at platforms. There's some compounding effect between open source data and platforms to be able to lower barriers to contribution and participation. Right? Tim O'Reilly used to talk about if you want a lot of participation, you need an architecture for participation. Some of the biggest changes in Linux that drove more participation were re-architectures or new tools like Git to be able to make it easier for more people to contribute. And the, the great quote I heard just this week, actually, Marsha Van Alstein, who's the chair of the economics department at Boston University, said, the reason you need platforms is because you have to have people you've never met bring you ideas you've never had. That is a wonderful quote. I have to remember that. That is exactly right. People you've never met bring you ideas you've never had. And so platforms, whether it's a social media platform or a cloud platform, tend to do a pretty good job of giving you data in a way that they want you to interact with. But there's limitations to openness, to extractability of the data. Doc Searles worked on uh, vendor relationship management, as he called it for a while, right? How do we create a new normal in society where we can assume that somebody buys a company that we've been using, we want to take our data elsewhere, how do we do that? And what's the meaningfulness of it? And as you pointed out, the metadata of how it's connected to all the other data, a piece of data is like an atom. It's not useful unless you've got a whole bunch of other atoms connected around it. So there's some fairly deep challenges ahead with the capital D data and what is open sourcing that mean? What is a GPL for data beyond, let's say, a Creative Commons CC by NA? What is a GPL for data? And what are those platforms that enable people to contribute around that data? In the world of software and code. We've built up all of these best practices. We recognize now that you really need one person to own the copyright. And it isn't necessarily a person that, that you probably put it in some structure or foundation because there are things that you need to be able to enforce and control around copyright. When it comes to data, what are the same best practices in terms of how do you create an entity that now has some ownership there. And just as in the software world, you have a contribution agreement where a person is giving up some control. It may not be copyright. We've nuanced this over the years, so we've gotten better at it. But we don't have as much experience with that yet around data. We have some things we can learn from the open source code world. But on the data side, what are the set of rights that a contributor of data needs to give up to some piece of open source data where they feel comfortable that they can still use their data the way they want to, the way they intended, that they, they haven't sort of lowered their own rights, but now they've given this broader community the rights to go extend, enhance, innovate, build, and create all those new things off of what they've started with. So there's a whole question there of what is that data contributor agreement look like? How do you structure these things? It's so powerful because the future of software, right, is not necessarily app-driven data, but data-driven apps. And if those apps 
are powered by models, we start thinking like, well, are the models going to be open source? Where do you train the models? What's the new asymmetric position between data owners and model developers? What kind of environment and rights, as you pointed out, do we want to create there so that we want more people to contribute, come up with more ideas with a lower barrier to entry? Your comment about data-driven app is incredibly insightful in this because when you look at AI-driven applications, they are not creating a custom algorithm for the problem. What they're doing is they're taking a, a large data set and you're feeding it into a machine learning system. And that machine learning system will now make decisions based on what it's learned from that data set. You feed it from data sets, you get different decision-making systems. The code, the machine learning algorithm is not the secret sauce in this. The secret sauce is the data set with which you train that algorithm. He who has the best training data set has the best algorithm. I use the word algorithm there loosely, right? The best decision-making around it. We see that all the time. There are companies out there because of their relationship with consumers have massive data sets. That massive data sets lets them train an ML system. And now they can make decisions around apps. They, they don't actually have to be smart at all. It's not about being smart about it. It's about having the biggest, best created data set. And this is the huge asymmetry that open source software solved when you look at HP and Sun and their dominance in infrastructure. And then the linkage to that of Oracle or Microsoft riding on top of that infrastructure with their application stack. There was no feasible way anybody could possibly get in there. And I witnessed the same thing when I first met you, actually, when I was working at Microsoft, leading their open source strategy, changing it from exterminate to uh, embrace. But the challenge that Microsoft was trying to fight at that time was how did they get better at search? So they were trying to beat Google. Google had already beaten them and they hired Chilu and they, they had all these aggressive moves, appropriately competitive, to hire the folks that had built the first thing. But they could never catch up. Because the data set that Google built and the rolling advantage made that a, a runaway success, no matter what else happened, Microsoft couldn't catch up. They looked at buying Yahoo for $40 billion just to be able to increase their share of data so that they could have enough data to have a better model. But that asymmetry means that nobody can create a new search engine. Our only way to look at the world is through what Google search provides. So if we start thinking about what might the giants of tomorrow require breaking some of these monopolistic and asymmetric constraints, and we have to figure out what that world might look like. So there's a revolution, I think, afoot, hidden inside open source data that's as powerful and intense as open source software was in the 90s. Yes, and, and, and I would qualify what you said there a little bit with the concept that no one can compete in that style, which is... Once someone has the bigger data set and their model reinforces that, it becomes self-reinforcing. As, as they acquire more data, their model gets better. That enables them to acquire more data because their model is better. It's a snowball effect. Someone has to invent a different view of how to come at that and a different view of how to solve that problem. Innovation will find things eventually there, but it will take some time. And certainly the availability, I think, of more open source data I think would help benefit 
anyone in getting started there. It's the old, you don't want to build. One of the things open source code has let us do is not start from the ground floor building. And again, if we have that in the open source data world, we can innovate and build off of this. And there's an opportunity to accelerate human progress in some areas too, because when we look at academic research, like in biological sciences, a lot of people are inventing data for the first time from a reasonably naive standpoint. They're like, look, I have this big machine, the big machine emits this file. I need to share these files. I need to process those. And they end up in the local area network. But the ability to say, hey, how might a common resource descriptor, how might schema, some way to open source that so that you're doing your own research, but you're also making available all these deep insights into the structure of this cell or of this gene, how might other people train new models on that? People would love to do it because science is fundamentally and by its nature open source, but the barriers are too high. People don't have the conceptual frame of, oh, I can open source that. That doesn't mean anything to them. Or I can take them to such and such provider and put it into a larger data set or make it discoverable. So there's something here that nobody's figured out, but it feels like the world wants it to happen. And I think we're still in the mode where people view the ownership and closed nature of that data as an advantage in some way. I actually started my career doing electronic design automation, EDA software. And in that world, whole companies were founded on having the best chip layout capabilities, layout algorithms, and it was the algorithm. And so the software was this golden jewel that no one could get access to. They designed source code management systems and build systems such that no developer saw all the code inside the systems. You think about that now, we're talking about open source, they were at the opposite end of it. They thought about their own employees working on their code, partitioning the code base in such a way that no employee, even with the right permissions access, could ever get enough of the pieces to put all those algorithms together. And then you, you kind of fast forward in the world, and at some point, you, you've seen enough of this, and you begin to realize that that value in code without the people that understand it and the negatives from that kind of approach far outweigh the risk that you were trying to mitigate by protecting it. At Sugar CRM, I used to get this all the time as we were hiring developers around the world to work on the product. Occasionally, you get a legal team that would come back and say, what's the risk of them doing this and copying code and whatever? And I'd go, well... <laughs> they, they can just get it out there anyway. That isn't what defines our business. You, you're not in position to solve problems for our customers just because you have source code. And I think there's something there around data that we have to think about as well, which is some of these data sets, I think people are still in this mindset, well, I don't know what's valuable about it, and therefore, I'm not going to let anybody else see it. And at some point, we're going to figure out that value is in letting other people see it. And that people will bring you the ideas that you didn't have. And you can sit there and you can hold it close. And guess what? You're not going to get the idea. And they're not going to get the idea. And that data set will eventually not be worth anything. Or you can allow more access to it. You can open it up. You can create innovation. That's so right on. We have to go through that. People have to go through that stage mentally. 
And we have to have some language actions that let us get smarter. When you went from searching the internet to Googling things, you got smarter. Now you just had a language action. It was to Google. And when you could open source project, you're like, oh, you're going to open source that? Oh, I thought about that. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. It doesn't mean you're automatically going to do it. When you think about how much complexity we just communicated by saying, will you open source that project? That's a whole world. What you're pointing at is that the data will tend to rot over time if it's not made more useful and available. And then if you open it up, if you connect it to more, it's less likely to rot. It's more likely to become more valuable over time. Where's the language action when you talk to the app team and you say, that's an awesome microservice. Did you open source the data? We might end up a lot smarter sharing data even internally to the enterprise the way that we now take for granted with code. We just don't do that today. And there's certainly a generation of value that's just missing pretty much in every company in the world for lack of that practice. Agreed. There's a value equation here that I talk about a lot when I talk about principles of applications that you're hinting at that I think is useful to, to dig into a little bit. And Google does it well. So you give a lot of data to Google. You may not explicitly give it, but every time you use Google, you save things there, run things through Gmail, all this, you're giving Google data. Most people are willing to do that because they get a lot of utility back. And think about the ratio of how much you put in versus how much you get back. You get back an awful lot, which is why people are willing to give up so much of their personal information because they get an awful lot back. And privacy experts come along and say, well, gee, you're taking all this personal information. But then most people look at that and say, yeah, but I get a lot of value back out of that. And it's this data ratio value question, which is for a little in, I get a lot back. That becomes a key element in this. And I think there has to be some kind of similar thought process just around open source data in general, which is, if I contribute some data into this, I'm going to get a lot of value back. So this data in to data out ratio, I think it's an incredibly important one. It's a principle that I drive into application development. If you put a user in front of an app and they start using the app, you're going to ask them for things. And my principle is always, how do you figure out how to never ask them and only give them? And you can't get 100% of the way there, but every time it's like, why did you ask him for that? Couldn't you figure it out? And it gets everyone in the mindset of how do I provide more and more and take less and less? It's a principle of application development that I like a lot. And I think there's a similar concept here around open source data is, are there models or structures that we can come up with where people can contribute small amounts of data? And as a result of that, they get back a lot of value. That's a tipping point that we can drive. That's incredibly powerful and so clearly articulated. We may have to call it the Augustine principle, actually, because you've, you've seen a lot of what this is like by building open source applications with Sugar CRM. And then you were recruited into Andy Jassy's S team to lead applications for AWS. And now you're looking at this whole world. Applications must continue to draw your interests and in the way that people give things and get things and what data they take away and how it combines with others must be very front and center to your investing thesis and what you're seeing in the world today. I am incredibly blessed and lucky to do things that I love. 
Right now, I'm very interested in this world of next generation of applications because we have a whole set of capabilities, new set of technologies that are changing the way people can create applications and build them. And that I think are going to give us just a, a next generation of exciting things that technology will do for us. I mentioned that principle of give to get. If you go back to enterprise apps of 20 years ago, Siebel, what did you do with Siebel? You typed a lot of information in and at best you got back what you put in, in nice columns and formats and ordered and sorted, but that's what it was. At best, you got back what you put in. And if you think about it, that's the lowest case of data value. But not until you had made people's jobs really suck <laughs> and hired a whole bunch of contractors to make up for the jobs that sucked and then build a bunch of new workflows. It's unbelievable. Sam, I will tell you a story. I can't say the company name, but uh, at Sugar CRM, we replaced a very large Siebel installation. And when we turned on the first region, for this customer. We suddenly got all this traffic. The region we turned on was in the UK and suddenly got all this traffic from India. And it's like kind of surprising. They were outsourcing. The sales team had said, I'm not going into this thing. So they had hired people in India who would work for them, who would literally go into the app, would download their opportunities, send them an email, they sent back an email with some updates and those people would then put it into the app. So they never touched the app, right? The software was so bad that they solved it with Peopleware, which yes. is literally the opposite of what we're trying to do with this entire industry. Yes, this is part of that principle of little in, push, push. Ask people for as little as you need or how to for everything you ask, always go back and say, couldn't I have figured that out? Couldn't I have figured that out? Is there some way to do it? And give them a lot back. So there's some principles like that. But some of the other things driving applications, AI fundamentally infusing applications will drive us to whole new app architectures in the same way cloud computing has driven us to whole new cloud native app architectures. So there's this concept of AI native that I think we will develop where it's not a case of I export some data, I build a model, what comes back is some decision piece, which is then effectively a procedure function call within my app. That's the equivalent of lift and shift to the cloud. I took advantage of AI by picking up the whole thing and setting it over here and slotting AI into this narrow function. I think we have, there's going to be this concept of AI native, where the core model for the app is the ML model and data will flow into that and those will get built and rebuilt in real time. You won't have this every six months or every three months, I run through my data models and I retrain and whatever. You, you have to be training dynamically the whole time because it is a living system. I think you'll have this AI native concept that comes out. That's incredibly powerful. There's a continuousness and continuous flow is something that we've talked about with software for a long time. Git became GitHub. We all built our DevOps infrastructure against that sense that you can have something that's constantly flowing. You can observe the branches. You can observe the merges. You can interact with the PRs. You can automate all this stuff. And we've done this so well for those classes of software. But to quote Luke Skywalker, if there's a bright center to the universe 
AI development is as far from it as you can possibly imagine, right? It's still <laughs> extremely difficult. There's nothing continuous about it, but it's got to get there. And maybe AI native would embed that continuousness in the tooling and in the architecture to support the kinds of experiences that you're describing. Yes. I think that's a step that will have to take place in applications for us to get there. Well, Larry, it's been a delight to talk with you. You've been incredibly generous, as always, with your time, uh, your wit, and your wisdom. I'd love to invite you to offer maybe one piece of advice to folks who are inspired by this conversation. They're thinking about open source. They're thinking about open source data. They're thinking about creating a startup. What would you have them focus on? There's so many things to talk about there. I'll probably step back to the high level in this, which is when people are thinking about these things or, or what to do, I tell people to spend time working on something they love doing. Just start from that. If you think about most open source businesses, they weren't created because someone sat down and said, I know, I'll go build this open source thing because I want to make money. You can probably find some of those. My guess is they probably aren't too successful. Most of the things you see out there were created because somebody, there was some problem that someone wanted to solve, they saw a need, and someone really enjoyed spending their time there. It's something they really love doing. Let's go back to writing Linux. He didn't write Linux to make money. He didn't write Linux to change the world. He did it because he wanted to do it. He enjoyed doing it. He learned from it. And it was something that he personally could be passionate about. And here we are later with Linux running many of these things in the world, and it's been transformative. That wasn't his intent. I think you have to as a person, really enjoy and love what you're doing. And it has to be something you can put your passion and heart into it and try and align those things. You think about the end of the day and it's late at night. What's the last thing you can do? If your passion is still, I'm going to go write that last line of code for this thing, or I'm going to go work on that last piece of thing, something's going to come of that. I, I think about a lot of the things I've done in my career. And I will say that times when I've followed my heart the most and just done things I've loved doing, I've been lucky enough and it's worked out for me. So follow your heart, do what you love, follow that passion. That is amazing. Larry, I was inspired and provoked to think new thoughts I've never had before. I definitely got smarter uh, listening to you. I know all of our listeners will feel the same. I'm so grateful for you spending your time with us. Oh, thank you, Sam. It's always fun to catch up and we should do that more often. So thank you. This is open source data producer Audra Montenegro, and I'm here with Sam as we like to debrief with his takeaways from each conversation. So Sam, what did you learn from Larry today? I am really quite struck by this idea of AI native. I feel like Larry was able to frame something that many of us have been moving towards from either an architecture standpoint or coming from business outcomes or coming from development and user experiences. But AI native feels like it's got some real strength as a frame of reference. And it changes how we think about what data needs to do, both in architectures and in speed. How fast will that data be available? How much faster can the application get better? And how do we change what humans do? Should we really be doing knowledge work anymore if that should be automated by machines? Can't we be doing creative work? like covering the last mile with human beings, doing things that only we can do that we can't put into machine intelligence. So really striking. I think we'll be chewing on AI native as a construct for a long time in the future. And I really do hope that he considers putting together a, a small conference or something along those lines. Yeah, it would be great to have him back in a future season and talk more specifically about the AI native concept. 
Well, a big thank you to our audience for joining us today. If you like the show, please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform. And if you didn't like it, please give us a five-star rating and leave us a comment on what you'd like to have us do differently. And a special thanks to the Caspian Studios team, my counterpart in production, Alexa Minter, for program management, Videm Yori and Kyle Ruska, and for audio and visual engineering, Scott Goodrich and Evan Ha, as well as creative producer, Landon Pontius. And of course, the data stacks folks like content strategist Jody Arthur, social leader Lauren Goal, and Katie Asher with the web design team. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you back here in two weeks. Mm-hmm.